you look at your bulletin outline, we're looking at the subject of idols of the heart. This is from Ezekiel chapter 14. And in the first verse, we learn about leaders that came before Ezekiel, but they were leaders who were leading the people astray. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about blind guides, the Pharisees, leading blind people into uh, what is supposed to be spiritual enlightenment. But a blind guide is an oxymoron because it's a per- if a person is blind, he can't guide anybody. He's got his own problems. That's true not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. We would refer to such spiritual guides as teachers. And in so doing, we would expect that such teachers are themselves devoted to God and motivated by God to teach his truth to others. And in all of this, not only to model the correct example of truth and righteousness, but to promote the God of these virtues. In Old Testament days, God spoke through the prophets, like Ezekiel of our text. But he also ordained and used men of leadership skills called elders, whose origin traces back to the days of Moses. When Moses was literally wearing himself out, counseling and adjudicating disputes between fellow Israelites, and God used Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, to solve the problem. The elders of Israel were tribal leaders, but Jethro noticed in particular about Moses himself. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. Moses, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as a judge? While all these people stand around you from morning till evening... Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide it between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. You know, this is the day before written Bibles. They had it on tablets of stone, but they didn't each have their own copy, so they'd come to the man. They'd come to Moses, and he would explain, well, here's here's what the book says that you should do in this particular situation. Now listen, Moses' father-in-law replied to him, What you are doing is not good. We would think, hey, that's pretty good. No, Jethro says, it's not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourself out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. You'll find all that in Exodus 18, verses 13 through 18. So Jethro's solution was to add judicial authority to the elders, the tribal elders, by assigning them the task to adjudicate less serious matters for the people. Here's what he said. Select capable men from the people. Now listen to the qualifications. 
men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. No, they're not going to be able to be bought off with a bribe. They're going to be judges that fear God above all things and are trustworthy men. Appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but you have them bring the difficult cases to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. And that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Exodus 18, verse 21 22. And thank God Moses took, he took the uh, counsel of Jethro, his father-in-law. And God blessed that. And this is where the elders came from that we see in Scripture. Now, it was these tribal heads, these spiritual uh, guides who came and sat down before Ezekiel, God's prophet. Moses, long time dead, he's gone, but other prophets are around, Ezekiel's around, and he sits, they would come and they sat down there in front of him to seek counsel from the Lord. That their great sin, as we discover, was their secret devotion. Verse 3, Ezekiel 14. Son of man, these men, they're sitting in front of you, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Good question. Jethro's counsel to Moses was what? You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to God. Exodus 18, verse 19. Moses is gone. Ezekiel is this later prophet. And so that's why they're there. They're there to get counsel from God, but they got this secret sin going on. Idols in the heart. Therefore, I'm reading on, speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, when any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. Ezekiel 14, verse 3. It's a sad, sad commentary on the spiritual leaders of God's people when, though they have not contracted with a metalsmith or sculptor to cast or carve a visible material idol, nonetheless have this secret, they are devoted to idols of the heart. How clever. But also how demonic. And see the idols of the heart. But they're there. How demonic. The Apostle Paul gives at least one name for this idolatry. It's in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Oh, greed. Greed can be an idol. Greed can be an idol. Mm. What is greed? It means The Greek word means covetousness, the desire to have more. Well, we may, 
we may see the effects of greed in somebody, but covetousness of itself is a secret idol of the heart. A person can be greedy and no one would know about it. And by the way, this was the idol that brought Paul to his knees in humility and shame. In his own words, what shall we say then? Is the law sin, writes Paul? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. (laughs) But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What is sin? John tells us sin is lawlessness, is sin, breaking of the law. You have to have a law to break. And then when you break that law, that's what sin is. And it's the law of God that we are talking about here. Romans 7, 7 through 9. So law exposes our sin. It did it with Paul. He's tripping along. He's feeling pretty good about himself. On another occasion, Paul tells of a time in his life when he boasted. As for zeal, I was one who persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Oh, legalistic righteousness. That is, Righteousness by obeying or trying to obey the law. So in his own mind, faultless, yeah. But his ego came crashing down the day that God used the Tenth Commandment to expose the covetous idol of his heart. He's going through, you know. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart. Oh, yeah, that's me. Have no other gods. Oh, yeah, that's me. And he's going down. No adultery. No, I don't do that. No stealing. No, I don't do that. And he gets to number 10. No covet. Ooh. Ooh. Now the barb of the law smote him. The elders of Israel, their spiritual leaders, were leading the people astray by presenting to them their own idols of the heart. God determined to bypass his prophets in answering these men, choosing instead to address them directly. Look at verse 5. I will do this, I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel. Oh, oh, so the elders in propagating their teaching have done something to the people's hearts. Yeah, wait a minute, you'll see. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their, I think he's referenced to the elders, their idols. No wonder James warns us, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. James 3, verse 1. Well, that's for the elders as they're sitting here in front of Ezekiel. So, false teachers have to account for leading people astray. But secondly, those who imbibe 
the idolatrous practices have to give account for their idolatry. Look at verse 6 of our text. Therefore say to the house of Israel, it's not just the elders now, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord, the sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols, renounce all your detestable practices. When any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from my people and then you will know that I'm the Lord. Ezekiel 14, verse 6 through 8. So, you know, it began with the elders, it began with their teaching and instruction, but the people imbibed that, began to practice it themselves. So I would say it this way, it isn't just the preacher whom God holds accountable, though we may bear a stricter assessment. The people who, who hear are responsible for what they give their allegiance to. Look at verse 10. They will bear their guilt. The prophet will bear will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Why is he consulting him? He's looking, he's looking for answers. So what he is saying, God is what God is saying is the prophet is responsible for what he teaches, but the people are responsible for what they hear. And imbibe. Imbibe means they didn't just listen to it with their ears and let it pass. They listened to it and said, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And they begin to believe it and act upon it. So what is God saying here? He's saying this. Forget the finger pointing. You're all guilty. False prophet and people alike. The prophet for putting a stumbling block in the pathway of God's people and the people for tripping over something they've been warned about time and time again. But my pastor said, well, I read this book. Well, my college professor taught me. Not going to cut it. You are responsible to be of the Berean spirit. Well, the apostle Paul said... And the Berean says, we don't care if it's the Apostle Paul or anyone else that's an apostle. We're going to search the scriptures to see if what he says is true. And Luke, writing the book of Acts, says, they prove themselves more noble than the Thessalonians because of that spirit. This tells me that idolatry is subtle. Idolatry is a slippery slope. Once you head down the path of replacing the living, living and sovereign Lord with lesser things, even things of your own imagination, your own will, your own passions, your own desires, it is a slope that often ends in the ruin of one's soul. Very dangerous. So God calls us to flee the idols of the heart. And that's the second point in our 
study here. Listen to Paul's warning to the Corinthians as he um, gives the history of Israel. Here's what he says. They all, speaking of the Israelites coming out in the Exodus, they all ate the same spiritual food. <laughs> and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now think about this. Manna from heaven, the bread of heaven, Christ. And they drank from the spiritual rock, Christ, the living water. Nevertheless, I'm reading on. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's that golden calf incident at the bottom of Mount Sinai. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 33,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. I'm reading scripture. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 12, and in verse 14, he says, Therefore, here's his conclusion, my, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. That was Israel's problem. Flee from idolatry. Now, if you think of the golden calves, you're thinking, well, yeah, that was, you know, Aaron made the calves and they had something physical that they could see and that's what they were worshiping and all of that is true, but there's the sexual immorality that went on that day too and so they were worshiping other things, idols of the heart. What then are some of the idols of the heart? And by the way, I can only scratch the surface on these this morning. Firstly, there is the idol of accommodation. This has been part of the philosophy of ministry, the philosophy of ministry of Christian circles for as long as I can remember. And it continues unabated, even escalating to new and more wicked heights. You say, Pastor, what on earth are you talking about? It is the idea that to win people for Christ, we have to dress like the world, run like the world, speak the language of the world, frequent the places that the people of the world frequent, and bring the world into our worship, all with the premise that we want, well, we want unbelievers to see that we are we're just like them. Let me ask that question. Are we just like them? 
Did Jesus teach us that to win the world to faith and repentance, we should try to see how close we can maneuver the precipice of hell without falling into it? Or did he command us to be salt and light to a world putrid with a stench of decay and death, a world steeped in darkness that is ignorance and sin? Surely Jesus taught us the latter. But we know better, right? The church knows better. We know that if our clothing has cut out knee holes, we'll be hip and the world will see that we're hip. If my lip is skewed with a silver-plated probe, that's not the same as an aborigine who has done the same with an animal bone. If I paint or tattoo my clavicle with a delicate flower, that's, that's not the equivalent of a hell's angel's biker skull and crossbones been blazing across my chest. As one godly person put it to me recently, why are we running just one step behind the pagans? We should realize, that I'm, I'm still quoting here, we should realize that we do not have to dress up like a clown to minister to the circus. But this is going on all the time in Christendom, ad nauseum. These are the idols of accommodation. And then, and then, we pontificate God words and pious platitudes to friends through social media as though they cannot see the difference between genuine and bogus Christianity. Listen to Paul. He's talking to the Jewish teachers of his day. He says, if you are convinced, if, if you are convinced that you are um, a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Yeah, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Romans 2, 19 through 24. You who? You teachers. You guys that say you're the, you're going to instruct. Accommodation to the lifestyle, the goals, the aspirations, yes, the methods and the practices of the unbelieving world does not win them to Christ. It causes them to blaspheme Christ. Why? Because even a pagan knows the difference between the pure 
and the profane, between the secular and the sacred, between loving God and loving the world. They know that much. When an unbeliever is in a bad way, an unbeliever is in a bad way, when God brings sorrow and sadness and judgment into their lives because of sin, they do not go looking for their compatriots in sin for spiritual guidance and recovery. No, they are looking not for a facsimile of a believer, not, not a fake copy, but for someone who knows the truth and proves it by living the truth. So my question to you and to me, to all of us, is this. What false, what false and lying message are you transmitting in to, to the watching world? Are you doing any better than the elders of our text whose idols of the heart they place before the faces of the people? Beware of the idol of accommodation. You were saved out of the world system. But I'm asking, is the world system out of you? Listen to Jesus' warning. No one, no one, says Jesus, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke 9, verse 62. You've been brought out of that. You can't do this. You can't stand there and straddle one foot in the world one foot in the kingdom of God and then just hope that the wind will blow you in the right direction. The idol of accommodation is too much with us. Secondly, there's the idol of independent thinking. Last Lord's Day, Pastor Tucker talked about thinking God's thoughts after him. It's not an original statement. I've heard others use that expression. It is a saying that makes clear what Paul told the Corinthians about Christian ministry. What did he say? He said, I'm reading, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10. Verse 5. There is a good definition of Christian ministry. Thoughts of men captive to Christ. What is he saying? He is saying that you and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are not permitted the luxury, may I say the sinfulness, of pretension and presumption. We do not get to make our own rules, choose our own path, pick and choose from the word of God what we will or will not obey. No, our thoughts are captive to Christ's thoughts. This is the clear and definitive mark of being born of God, which Pastor Tucker spoke on the other week. And conversely, conversely, what's the mark of the natural man? Uh, what's the mark of the man as we find him or her in nature, untouched by God, unenlightened by the Holy Spirit. What can we say about their thinking? 
You don't have to guess. Paul writes about it. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The sinful mind, writes Paul, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans 8, verse 5 and 5. And it is this propensity to independent, may I say, to sinful thinking that Paul told the Corinthians he was out to demolish and capture for Christ. What's the lead characteristic in the thinking of a person that's hostile to God? Well, Paul says, it does not submit to God's law, God's word. The word of God is a moot influence in those people's lives. You can quote the Bible to your blue in the face. It doesn't mean a thing to them. And only until the Spirit of God takes the sword of the Spirit and strikes them dead of their pride and self-reliance does it start to mean something. No, their lives are on to better things. <laughs> Selfish things, defiant things. Things done the way they want them to be done regardless of the consequence Regardless of God's warnings of danger, including apostasy. We don't care about any of that God junk. We're going to do it our way. Even now, some of you may be arguing in your minds about some of the issues that I've raised today concerning dress and friendships and associations and so on. They are viewed by you as my opinion, not God's word. Or you may cut me a little bit of slack. You'll just say something, well, you know, Pastor Luke means well, but... He's just a bit old-fashioned, and he's a little bit behind the times. It's why some professing Christians stay home and avoid church altogether. They believe their home Bible study is as valid as a spiritually profitable as sitting under God's called ministers whom God has given to the church, let me read for you, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there and everywhere by the wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, Ephesians 4, 12 through 14. That's why God gives pastors and missionaries and the like to churches. It was the idol of independent thinking that caused Israel to forfeit the promised land. Say, what happened? Well, I'll tell you. Very frankly, they didn't believe Moses. They didn't believe Aaron. They didn't believe Joshua. And most horrendous of all, they didn't believe God. So they didn't get to go into the promised land. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this and he says, writing to you and me, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that None of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. No, I'm good with God. Everything's good. Everything's copacetic. 
deceitfulness of the heart will tell you that. Here it goes on. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 19. The idol of independent thinking manifests itself as an idol of the heart. Satan convinces you that you know best how to pattern your life. Paul addresses that independent spirit in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. You say, that's impossible. United in mind and thought. Well, it's not impossible if all of us are captive to God's thoughts as revealed in the Bible. It may take us a while to get there because we're dealing with people on different spiritual levels. We're dealing with those that are just saved and so they're infants in the faith. We're dealing with those that are more mature and we're dealing with the old saints and so forth that have a whole history of following so we're on different levels in terms of our spiritual understanding, but we're all moving in the same body of faith. And by that, I don't mean just the, the verb faith, but the noun faith. What we hold to, what we believe, what we've been taught is the word of God. And we're moving on in that, subjecting our mind and our thoughts to that body of truth. And that's what unites us and holds us together. The idol of individual thought. Well, that's much, much with us in America. Everybody wants to be an independent thinker. You're not telling me what to do. I hear that all the time. Number three, the idol of self-interest and self-satisfaction. This is the idol of the heart that fuels agenda. Why do you do the things you do? Why do you promote certain things? Why must you always push to get your way? Where's the humility? Where, where's the dedication to unity in the body and working together without manipulation? Why do you excuse certain sins in yourself that you would never tolerate in others? The idol of self-interest and Self-satisfaction. Jesus taught his disciples the number one ground floor, most basic principle of all for functioning in the body of Christ. Here it is. A new command I give, I give you, says Jesus. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. John 13, verse 34 and 35. Well, two of his disciples that were sitting there that day and heard Jesus say that also wrote some scriptures for us. I'm thinking of Peter and John. 
and they write in their books that bear their name an explanation of this kind of love. And here's what Peter says. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Notice that such love, while deep and sincere, flows from an obedient and pure heart. In other words, this love will not compromise either holiness or truth. If it does, then it's not sincere love that Jesus has commanded. And what about John? Well, he writes this. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Tell tell us, John, how how, how are we going to know this? By loving God and carrying out His commands. Whoa. This is love for God, to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 5, verses 2 through 5. I want you to observe here that Peter and John are singing the same song when it comes to defining love for God and love for the church. Such love is rooted in truth. It expresses itself in obedience to Jesus' commands. It evidences itself in overcoming the world. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world has it wrong when it says, and I heard it just again this week, in order to love others, you have to love yourself first. How many of you have heard that? Self-love and the idol of self-interest is built upon this lie. Divine love says... Love is, I'm reading scripture, love is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 and 6. Okay, how do we do this? How do we have this? not self-seeking kind of love, how do we have this love that delights in truth? Paul wrote to Titus. Titus is like Timothy. He's he's been mentored by Paul in the things of the gospel. He's a fellow minister. Titus is on the island of Crete where Paul left him. Go down there. I'm going to want you to preach the gospel to those people. So here's what he writes. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Titus 2, verse 7 and following. Now the word, for example, that Paul uses here to to Titus is very interesting. It's the Greek word tupos, T-U-P-O-S, from which we get the English word type. And it means the mark or the insignia left from the blow of a die. Titus had the mark of Christ upon his ministry, as do all true believers. And as a teacher, his teaching was to exemplify, that is to clearly show integrity seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. It was to evidence a clear protest. Say no, Titus, to ungodliness and worldly passions. And let that show in your life. It was to, he was to exhibit self-control. He was to exhibit uprightness. Since he had been stamped by Christ as his very own people whom he redeemed with his own blood. Now the challenge to all of us who are parents, grandparents, what, Sunday school teachers, elders, youth workers, deacons, all of us who know the Lord, you and I bear the mark of Christ's imprint. The stamp of a die, brethren, is indelible. It's embossed in the metal. I brought um, a metal dish that I'm sure was, I'm sure it was stamped with a die. No one's going to sit there and do all this by hand time and time again. It looks like a, I don't know, a tree. This is the stem and these are the little branches that go up. But it's embossed in the metal. It can't be washed off. It can't be scoured off with steel wool, though you could make some scratches on it, but you wouldn't get rid of those imprints. It can't even be eradicated by painting over it. Suppose we painted this and it's no longer silver but white. You would still see the embossment in the metal. There's only one way to get rid of the embossments in the metal. And that's to put it in another press with steel plates under hydraulic pressure and squash it completely flat. But then, then you would destroy the nature of the dish. It would no longer be a vessel fit for the master's use. 
What you do as a professing believer will leave a mark on those you instruct. And you are responsible as a believer and spiritual guide of others to leave no impression, no mark, no false rudiments of the world left over from your days of willful sin that denies or distorts or inhibits the spiritual progress of those who look up to you for the truth. Even in the areas of Christian liberty, you may not make an imprint on a weaker brother that has the potential of destroying that brother. You'll have to sacrifice your liberty, if it can be called that. Let me read it for you. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. We're already imprinted with the mark of Christ in our life. Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Do not let the world conform you to its image. Philip's translation is precious. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. You got it? You already carry the imprint of Christ. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So you don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The idols of the heart are many. The idols of the heart are diverse. I've only scratched the surface, and I am sure much more could be said. But one thing is true of any idol that you hold dear. Be it the idol of accommodation, the idol of independent thinking, the idol of self-interest and self-satisfaction, or some other idol known only to you. And the thing is this, God will not share your worship with your idols. He won't. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, here's what he wrote. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8 through 10. Isn't that great? What, what, what characteristic does Paul hold up as proof in his own mind that his teaching at Thessalonica was not in vain? It is this. They turn, from God, turn, turn to God from idols they turn to god from idols to serve the living and true god when the thessalonians heard the gospel they were converted in heart and mind they did not bring their idols on the journey of life as the israelites of old did 
No, they turn to God from idols, be they physical or idols of the heart. To serve what? The living and true God, realizing that Jesus alone could save them from the coming wrath. The idols of your heart can damn you, but they won't save you. They can condemn you, but they cannot rescue you. How serious is this? Look at verse 13 and following of our text. Ezekiel 14, son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut it off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its men and their animals, even if these men, Noah, Daniel, Job, were in that city, they could, not, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Ezekiel 14, verse 13 and 14. Brethren, we ride to glory on the resurrected and living and true God, but of idolaters. Therefore, surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because... You have defiled my sanctuary with all of your vile images and detestable practices. I myself will draw, withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. Ezekiel 5, verse 11. Idols of the heart are dangerous. You might think we're worshiping God, but if we're not obeying His commands, and if we have these things that we're going to, that we prefer over God, and his commands, we are in a bad way. Good challenge then from Ezekiel's words, repent, repent. Do the things you did at first. It begins with the elders, and it goes right down to the person in the pew. It goes right down to the children. There are many things that look like they're gods. It looks like we should run after them. But we're to be salt and light to a watching world. Are we salt and light? Are we willing to risk mockery and insult from the world? Because you look too holy for them to abide? And they don't want to hear from you because Oh, he's preaching at me again. We must give an account before the Savior, before the creator of the universe. Let us think on those things. Father, we thank you for your word, how precious and also how stinging at times, how powerful. We've been already stamped with the the stamp of your sovereign grace and of your mercy. We bear the imprint of Jesus Christ, our Savior, if we know him. And if we know him, the Bible says that God has given us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as an earnest, that is, as a down payment to comfort our hearts and to show us that yeah, we, we are the children of God. 
we're indwelled by the same spirit that animated Christ. Now, we're not perfect. We're not sinless. We're moving towards that. But at the same time, that separates us from the world. And so John can tell us, don't love the world or anything in the world. And we say, yeah, amen, right. That's exactly the way I want to live. I'm not out to accommodate them. I'm not out to make them feel comfortable around me, per se. I'm not out to exalt my own thinking as an independent thinker so that people will praise me. And I'm certainly not out for self-interest and self-love. Lord, help us to be people who love truth and declare truth. There's one here today that has been worshiping at the shrine of individual idolatry, whatever it is, be it passion, money, popularity, whatever. I pray that today will be the day that they understand there's judgment coming for those kind of things. And just because we're in an association of churches that are led by godly men and, men and women, because we have men and women of our own local church that are godly, they'll not save us because of our association with them. These godly men we see in the text here, Daniel and Job and Lord. Ezekiel says, if judgment were to come upon a city and these men were there, they could only save themselves by their righteousness and no association with them will benefit us spiritually. We must stand before God on our own merit and we better have the merit of Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for the idols of our heart. I don't know all of the idols. I know my idols. Forgive us, Lord, for putting other things in ahead of you. Forgive us for wanting to be like the world and still say, oh, we're saved. Oh, we know the Lord. Yeah. Make us like yourself, Lord. The day of judgment is already ticking. It's coming. May we be prepared. In Christ's name, amen.